Before we jump into this episode, we wanted to let you know about an upcoming live event as well as a special offer. First, this Saturday, May 16th at 1 p.m. Central, John and Lindsay Tollefson will be leading a seminar on parenting during the pandemic. They're going to be getting practical on how to create a home that is full of peace, creativity, and productivity. So once again, that is this Saturday, May 16th at 1 p.m. Central on Facebook Live with John and Lindsay Tollefson on parenting and home life during the pandemic. In addition to the talk, there will be a Zoom Q&A afterwards. You can RSVP to join this call with the link in the show notes. And we are limiting this to 50 people. So if you are interested, go ahead and sign up. And next, we have a special offer for you from our friends at Athanasius Press. Up until this Friday, May 15th, you can capitalize on their 55% discount on bulk purchases of the Theopolitan Vision by Peter Lightheart. If you purchase 25 or more copies of the Theopolitan Vision, they will give you a 55% discount if you use the link and the promo code that we have provided for you in the show notes. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our new series going through the Book of Acts. And here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers are going to be giving a theology of Pentecost to help with our understanding of the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Thank you for joining us, uh, and uh, we're delighted to be here continuing our studies in the book of Acts. Uh, we started a series in the book of Acts a few weeks ago and covered some large questions about the, the organization of the book of Acts, how it fits with uh, Luke's gospel and uh, issues such as that. And then we also looked at chapter one of Acts in the last episode. Uh, this week and next week, we're going to focus on chapter two. It's a long chapter, and so it's going to take a couple of weeks to work through it. And of course, it's a hugely important chapter because this is the day of Pentecost and a crucial moment in the history of the world, the history of redemption, and uh, in more narrowly in the book of Acts. This is the yeah, the Spirit takes the initiative here, and uh, as Jesus pours out the Spirit that is with him on the disciples, uh, they initiate the mission, carrying on the mission that Jesus had given them. Uh, let me let me start with just a couple of observations. I think this this uh, first episode will focus on background issues about uh, the Pentecost, some of the Old Testament issues about Pentecost, uh, and uh, focus on uh, the first thirteen verses or so of chapter two. In verse fourteen of chapter two, Peter begins a long sermon, uh, and we'll look at that in the next episode and look at the Jews' response to that and the early life of the uh, community of believers in. Jerusalem. But let me start by by highlighting a couple of things in the immediate context of Acts chapter 2. Uh, Alistair has made this point several times uh, in our previous two episodes in, the, in Acts, the emphasis that Luke places on prayer. And I think we should take note of that as we're looking at the day of Pentecost. It's not mentioned in Acts chapter 2, but just at the end of Acts chapter 1, the uh, disciples that are gathered are in prayer, asking the Lord to guide them uh, as they're making a selection for a new 
apostle to replace Judas. They're gathered together in prayer. Jesus has exhorted them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. In Luke's gospel, he tells them to pray for the Holy Spirit. And so there's this link, as there is in the account of Jesus' reception of the Spirit, there's this link between prayer and the gift of the Spirit. Even though they're not explicitly said to be praying for the Spirit at the end of chapter 1, they are in a, they are praying, and then we have this sudden appearance of the Spirit. Now, that occurs on the day of Pentecost. The Pentecost is a Jewish uh, fest, feast day. It's not uh, a uh, Christian invention uh, and is associated with a number of different things. But one of the things that it's associated with is the arrival of Israel at Sinai and the giving of the law at Sinai. And that's certainly part of the background of what's happening uh, in Acts 2, the event of Pentecost. The gift of the Spirit of Pentecost is a fulfillment of what began at Sinai. The Lord spoke his law at Sinai, entered into covenant with his people. Now he pours out the Spirit on his disciples. Uh, and that Spirit is the Spirit who writes the tab- law on the tablets of the human heart. That spirit is the finger of God who's able to write God's law in our hearts so that we can keep it. This uh, is also the elements of theophany as there are in Sinai. There's a a violent rushing wind. Uh, There's an appearance of fire. And some of the phenomena that we see uh, at Sinai are taken up here. So this is a fulfillment of that Old Testament feast of Pentecost uh, with a new covenant that fulfills the old covenant that they entered at Sinai. The most common connection that people tend to refer to in the context of Pentecost is Babel. As we read through the Old Testament, the story of Babel really hangs in the background of a lot that takes place. It's the scattering of the nations, and it provides the immediate background for the call of Abraham. What was created through a judgment, the scattering of the nations, is going to be responded to by an act of blessing. And so the blessing of Abraham is the response to the scattering of the nations at Babel. There we have a confusion of tongues and there's a judgment upon people who are trying to build a tower that reaches to the heavens, a site of um, communication between the heavens above and the earth beneath. And in Babel, there's a reversal of that, but also in some ways um, a continuation of some of its themes. So on the one hand, we have the connection between heaven and earth established by the ascension of Christ and then the descent of the Spirit upon the church. That is a tower, as it were, between heaven and earth that responds to the quest of Babel that was undertaken in a false way. But throughout the book of Genesis, we see ways in which God is going to establish a connection between heaven and earth, a conduit, Jacob's ladder being the great example. And now this is... Jacob's ladder established, as it were, angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, as we read about in John chapter 1. And now there is a new display of tongues, no longer the um, confused tongues of Babel, but people being joined together in one lip of worship, even if they're speaking in many different tongues. And that unity in worship is one that expresses the um, overcoming of the confusion of Babel without destroying the diversity of Babel, which God always intended for his people. And there, I think, it helps us to understand why um, later on in Galatians, Paul can talk about the gift of the Spirit as the promise of Abraham. It's that which responds to the event of Babel and fulfills what God intended to do with Abraham. Yeah, one of the things that um, 
again, connects chapters one and two that, that fits with that is the uh, emphasis on the disciples and the group that uh, surrounds them being of one accord. They're all with one accord in a place devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, they are with one accord uh, in uh, uh, in their reception of the Spirit. They're with one accord after the Spirit comes in their devotion to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. So that's, um, yeah, the, the diversity of the nations is there, but uh, the accents on the Spirit binding this diverse community together so that they have one mind and one heart. And some of the judgment dimensions of Babel are retained because there is confusion for some of the people who are watching who think that they must be drunk. Um, and later on in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul can take up Old Testament prophecy in this um, reference and talk about the way that it is a sign of judgment to unbelievers in part, um, that they are being God's word is being spoken in foreign tongues. They're not understanding it. And I think we're also seeing maybe something of the background of the story of First Samuel, where um, Eli, the high priest, can't tell that Hannah is engaged in prayer and actually thinks that she's drunk. Um, we have someone praying in the temple at the beginning of the book of Luke called Anna. And I think here we have a parallel to that, the church engaged in prayer and worship of God and yet the religious leaders can't tell what's really taking place. Yeah, the accusation of drunkenness comes up explicitly in verse 13. There are some other um, references to drunkenness we could sort of bring into that. There's the text of Isaiah 28 where um, a spirit of drunkenness is said to be poured out on Israel and then men of foreign speech uh, speak judgment against them and, and that speech has got, got this sense that the, the men of Israel don't don't understand it. We then have the example of um, Belshazzar's feast, where there is the drunkenness and and the writing on the wall, which which can't be read by the Babylonians. And so that uh, theme of um, a message that is not understood seems to announce judgment on those who have failed to understand it. And that judgment is mostly uh, associated with tongues with languages uh, in the New Testament history, um, it is rather odd that, or, and, and surely very significant, that Peter didn't just speak to them all week. It wasn't a matter of them not being able to understand him if he would have spoken Greek. They surely all knew the common language, or even Hebrew. These are all Jews that have come to uh, Jerusalem. But there's a deliberate attempt to say uh, that the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus is going to go into other language, not just Hebrew. It's going to be diversified, decentralized. And all through the book of Acts, whenever tongues come upon usually Gentiles, um, it provokes uh, both praise and thanksgiving from the apostles and the apostolic church, but also um, a spirit of jealousy and anger uh, from unbelievers, particularly unbelieving Jews. I mean, he, this is one of the things that Paul speaks about when he gets to 1 Corinthians 14, and he has to correct the Corinthians' understanding of tongues. Yeah, I, I see um, what's going on here as, I guess, very much the start of that process that you're talking about, Jeff, the start of the um, taking of the gospel into different languages. So in verse 6, 
for instance, it, it, it said, you know, sort of literally, how can we hear them speaking each in his own dialect? Um, I haven't looked into that word perhaps as, as much as I should, but as you say, the, these were all Jews. They would definitely have spoken all sorts of different dialects of Aramaic. And if the issue is more dialectal than the idea of, you know, lots of completely separate languages, it, it would kind of fit well with the surprise statement uh, in verse 7 on all these who are speaking Galileans, which is, again, a, a particular dialect of Aramaic. It's, it, it's kind of like if a bunch of Americans started speaking fluent Chinese or something in, in China, the exclamation wouldn't be, well, hang on, these guys are Texans. You know, um, the, the surprise would be that it's an American speaking Chinese. And, and so I see this as the start. And obviously the continuation of that would be the remarkable step that the disciples and others chose to write the New Testament in Greek, which, I mean, there was no precedent for that. Um, and, and so it's a remarkable step to write scripture in the Greek language. Yeah, I want to go back to the uh, comments that were made earlier about the judgment. I think the, the tongues are a sign of a coming judgment. The, behind the Isaiah passage, you have the covenant warnings of Deuteronomy, where one of the covenant warnings is that you'll be surrounded by people of a strange tongue. And the the specific thing that's in view is an invasion. If Israel doesn't keep covenant, then the Lord will send in uh, strange speakers to surround them and to dwell in their land and to take them off into exile, ultimately. Uh, but there are other elements of judgment here, too. The, Peter accents this. Uh, we'll look at this next time. But uh, Peter accents this when he talks about, when he quotes from Joel and talks about the wonders in the sky above, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon into blood. That's all the language of a collapsing universe, a world is coming to an end. And I think that the reference to drunkenness and the allusion to First Samuel fits with that too, that um, it's more specific than just a, a general judgment. I think what's in view is something similar to what happens in the aftermath of Hannah's prayer. Hannah prays at the tabernacle. Eli mistakes her prayer for drunkenness. And, uh, and within a couple of chapters, and she's praying, she praises God once Samuel is born for overturning the order of Israel. And within a few chapters, the tabernacle has been decimated. The priests are all dead. Uh, and Shiloh, the great uh, the great uh, judgment at Shiloh has happened. And I think we have here the beginnings of that, not the beginnings, because Luke has already made this point, but uh, the beginnings in Acts of that theme of the looming judgment, the standing over Jerusalem and the Jews. Shiloh's happened uh, in the days of Samuel. Shiloh happened again in the days of Jeremiah when the temple was destroyed. A judgment on Shiloh is the looming danger for the Jews in Jerusalem also. In addition to those themes of approaching judgment, I think we can see something of a reversal of judgment in the story of the Exodus. There is a signal judgment upon Israel after their sin with the golden calf, and 3,000 people are slain by the Levites. But here we have 3,000 people being cut to the heart by Peter's message and converted. It seems that the story of Sinai is playing out again, but in a way that turns the judgment in that particular case to blessing. Um, the story of Sinai is a story of the word being written on tablets of stone, tablets of stone that stand outside of the people and end up judging them. They're destroyed um, as Moses 
as Moses judges the people in chapter 32, he casts the, the um, tablets down to the ground. But here we have the law written upon people's hearts. The fire comes down upon human persons. And there is a new writing of the law here that I think suggests all the themes of the new covenant, that Christ gives the law by the Spirit, which is then written upon people's hearts, fulfilling Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 to 34, and other parts like that in Scripture. We'll perhaps touch on it next time round, but the quotation from Joel has that sense of a, a new covenant text to my mind. There is this um, least to the greatest knowing the Lord, I think, reflected in the way sons and daughters prophesy, young men and old men uh, dream dreams, and then there is the outpouring of the Spirit. So that all seems to come together. Yeah, and it, perhaps another, uh, that would be one dimension of another typology that's operating here. There's, I think we've got different layers. We've identified a Sinai typology. There's a there's something uh, going on with the drunkenness that alludes to Samuel, uh, Pentecost, um, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, the ongoing Feast of Pentecost, and Babel. But I think we also have a, a creation typology. Whenever the Spirit shows up, here the Spirit shows up with the phenomena of a rushing mighty wind. I think we're back in Genesis 1-2 territory where you have the Ruach of Elohim that's hovering over the waters. Is that the wind of God? Is that the Spirit of God? Is that the Spirit rushing like a mighty wind to form, a new, to form the creation? I think that's, it's, it's some combination of that, and that's what we have here as well. When the Spirit comes like a rushing mighty wind, he's forming a new world. He's forming a new humanity, as you said, James, with uh, uh, some interruption of the old divisions between old and young, between men and women. I think the other, another typology that's a, that's a work here is a temple typology. Um, when uh, Israel had completed the tabernacle at the foot of Sinai, the glory came down and inhabited the tent. When Solomon finished the temple, the glory inhabited the temple. Uh, now Jesus has ascended and taken his throne, and he pours out his spirit, uh, and uh, that spirit inhabits the new temple, uh, which is no longer a building. This is one of the aspects of the new covenant. It's a no longer a building, but a people. Uh, and the people themselves become something like living sacrifices, something like living altars with fire burning on their heads, resting on each one of them. Uh, that's the same kind of picture that we have at those uh, temple completion scenes in the Old Testament. The Lord taking his rest on his throne in the most holy place, and then fire coming out from the throne to light the altar. Uh, the altar is also a human altar in this case, and that's the apostles who are burning in the presence of the Spirit and burning with the fuel of the Spirit. Could maybe also connect that with the lampstand that the church is com connected with the lampstand in places like Revelation chapter 1. And here we have the light, the light of the flame descending upon each person's head. Each person becomes a living lamp, as it were. Um, and there, even going to the Old Testament, there is the way in which Aaron and others are associated with the lampstand. Aaron is connected with the almond, the blossoming almond rod, and the lampstand itself is connected with blossoming almonds. Another aspect of the typology that does come to mind is the story of Numbers chapter 11, where Moses complains about the burden of the people that's placed upon him. 
and then the, some of the spirit is taken from Moses and then placed upon the 70 elders at that point. And here, I think, we're seeing something similar, um, the spirit of Christ being taken and placed upon his disciples so that they are now acting in the spirit of Christ, just as the elders were acting in the spirit of Moses. That connection, I think, is strengthened further by the way that Moses responds to Joshua's statement about Eldad and Medad, who prophesy in the camp. They weren't with the original group of elders who were around the tent of meeting, and yet they still receive the gift of prophecy and they speak. Um, and he says, would that all the people of God were prophets, that his spirit, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And here I think we're seeing the fulfillment of that. Um, maybe the prophet Joel's prophecy is something that goes between those two and anticipates that actually coming to pass in the future. That transfer of the spirit from Moses to the people or that um, uh, you know, ex expansion of the spirit to the people uh, also links up with the typological sequence of the Israelite feasts. Um, so in verse 1, it says the day of Pentecost arrived. The word there is soon plerao. Uh, this is the fulfillment of the uh, Feast of Pentecost. And if you look at the sequence, you have Passover followed by, or part of Passover is unleavened bread. You know, you're making haste, you're getting out of the old world. Uh, and then there's uh, fe the Feast of First Fruits, which is the presentation of a single sheaf of the first of the harvest. Um, and then, then there's Pentecost, 50 days after Pentecost, um, when there's another first fruits offering. This time it's uh, yeasted bread, two loaves. Um, so newly cultivated yeast, not the old stuff. Uh, and it's a festival to mark the beginning of the harvest. So, you know, this, this recapitulates Israel's primal history uh, and also, of course, follows the agricultural year. You got Passover, uh, moving from Egypt, unleavened bread, first fruits, uh, with Moses being the first fruit up into Mount, up on Mount Sinai, and then the Spirit being poured out uh, with the giving of the law and the uh, completion of the tabernacle, and then this, uh, of course, the Spirit being with them, present with them in the tabernacle amongst the congregation. All this stuff is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the Passover lamb. He takes away the sin of the world. And he's also the single sheaf of the new harvest in his flesh brought near and uh, uh, presented wave before God, uh, the new creation. That's the resurrected Jesus, uh, the flesh of Jesus. But then on Pentecost, we have the descent of the Spirit and, the, and, and a new dwelling of God among humanity. So the first fruits is expanded. It's a first fruits church now. It's a new harvest of humanity. It's newly uh, yeasted bread, um, and so and and, and those, that bread is brought near first fruits. What is it? Uh, the the eighth week, the the first day of the eighth week. It's a new creation, um, and James refers to this too in James chapter one when he refers to the early church as the first fruits of uh, the Lord's creation. So there's this, there's a sequence in the Israelite uh, feast. There's a sequence in Jesus being the fulfillment of that. And also now the church is part of that fulfillment. I'm stating the obvious in some senses, but we've mentioned and brought out a whole 
range of ways in which Luke is drawing on Old Testament imagery and backdrop. And that just seems to me to emphasize the massive significance of this moment. There is a a rushing together and climaxing of many different strands of the scriptural backdrop. And I don't want to get specifically into doctrinal differences, but I do feel that some uh, charismatic readings and interpretations of the relevance of Pentecost, for instance, can sometimes miss out on or or minimise the massive historical significance of it as a marker and watershed moment in history. So as a once-for-all moment and not simply as a, uh, an experience that individuals have, um, is, that the, is that part of the point you're making? Yeah, I think so. I mean, don't get me wrong, we, we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives, but um, sentiments such as we need another Pentecost can be um, apt to misinterpretation, I think. Yeah, we'll be looking at this as we go through Acts, I'm sure, but um, there are other events that are Pentecost-like events scattered through the book of Acts. And it does seem to me that they occur at transition moments uh, as the gospel moves into Samaria, then there's a Samaritan Pentecost. And as it moves to Gentiles, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a Pentecostal moment when, in the house of Cornelius. And then there's a Pentecostal moment late in the book when uh, they find people who have been baptized with the baptism of John, uh, and uh, they also receive the Spirit. So you have the the epicenter moments uh, are a descent of the Spirit, and then it ripples out. Uh, that doesn't it, it doesn't happen with everybody who converts. It happens at these transition moments as you move from one area to another. Uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up uh, related to your point, James, about the the epical significance of Pentecost and the continuity of Pentecost with all these Old Testament types. Uh, there, there is, I think, a, a, a widespread idea that the Spirit functions quite differently in the New than in the Old Covenant. That the Old Covenant, the Spirit equipped people for uh, rule, uh, judges receive the Spirit, kings receive the Spirit, artisans receive the Spirit, but the Spirit gave uh, a kind of official and f- what had a kind of official and functional role and now in the New Covenant, the Spirit's work is more uh, spiritual, if you want to put it that way, or moral. The goal of the Spirit now is to conform us to a particular character, Jesus, and to produce particular moral fruit or the fruit of certain virtues. We might want to suggest that there's a there's certainly a discontinuity in the way that the Spirit works between the old and new. But I want to suggest much more continuity and that the Spirit is coming on the apostles precisely so they can carry out the office that they've been given as apostles, proclaiming the gospel, founding churches, making war against the against the idols, making war against the demons. They are like the judges who are clothed with the Spirit so they can engage in holy war. And whatever discontinuities we find there, and I think there will be some, we also want to recognize the continuity between the two covenants. So your, your thoughts or reactions to that? Hey, Peter, this is a huge <clears throat> systematic theological question that everybody asks. And my over 30 years of ministry, this is always, always comes up. What about the Spirit in the Old Testament? Uh, why didn't people in the Old Testament have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Uh, that's their question anyway. Um, so I, I think what you're saying is that, um, so all these people that are gathered at, let's just do it this way, all these people that are gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, all these 
believing Jews who come to worship. We're not saying somehow that they never had the spirit um, before this, uh, even when they come to believe, because uh, uh, Peter will say at the end of his sermon, of course, you know, you if you repent and you're baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 38. Um, but I don't think any of us want to say that none of these people had the Spirit, none of these Old Covenant believers had the Spirit before Pentecost. That There is some sort of enhanced um, and different mode of presence. Uh, is Would you say that's accurate? That's a related question to what I was asking. Let me see if I can clarify I think there are two. I think there are two distinct questions. One question is whether the spirit was at work at all in the Old Testament among common people. That's the question you're addressing. The other question is: Is the spirit's work radically different in the Old and the New? I, I get the related questions, but I the, I was asking the the latter question more. But I think yeah, there's certain there's certainly related questions. Uh, do people depend on the spirit to live lives of covenant righteousness in the Old Testament? Is that something that they do? Or is it just that special people get the Spirit to do special things? Uh, when the Spirit is explicitly mentioned, that's usually the context that people get special, a uh, special gift of the Spirit to do special things. But I think you're right that the Spirit, the Spirit is still operating in the Old Testament. I have some thoughts about how to express the continuity and discontinuity, but uh, I wonder if Alistair James has thoughts on all this. It seems to me one of the difficulties we have is that we just do not realize how significant the event of Pentecost is for commissioning the church for its mission and it's um, giving it a presence of the spirit that is not just the presence in individual hearts, but it's setting it apart for a prophetic, a kingly and a priestly calling within the world. That once we've lost sight of that, I think the question will become a lot keener um, because the spirit was always, I think, active within individuals' hearts, moving them to faith, etc. But what we're seeing here is something more, that the spirit at Pentecost is similar to the spirit in the missions of the prophets or in the anointing of the king. I think we have some, um, we've already mentioned some of the aftershocks of Pentecost, as it were, as the gospel goes to the Samaritans, as it goes to the Gentiles. We have four shocks of Pentecost, um, and those can be seen very much at the beginning of the book of Luke. In Luke's gospel, we have things like John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. We have Christ being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary um, as the Holy Spirit overshadows her. It's what some have described as a Marian Pentecost. We have Simeon um, being filled with the Spirit, being told by the Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ, and then coming in the Spirit into the temple I think there are other Pentecostal themes there. And then, of course, Christ with the Spirit descending upon him at his baptism. Now, Christ clearly had the Spirit beforehand, but there's a an anointing for his mission that is far more public and it's um, a validation and announcement of his mission at that point that I think is corresponded, it corresponds with what's happening here. And that transition that we see within the book of Acts is not from unbelief to belief. It's from belief to a newly commissioned um, and empowered um, 
calling within the world. If we see people like Cornelius, Cornelius is not someone who's an unbeliever beforehand, nor were the Jews that are direct that received the gospel in many of these cases unbelievers. They were people who were God-fearing, righteous Jews. But with the advent of the new covenant, it's a movement into something that's working on a completely different scale. And there I think the themes of prophecy, the themes of the Spirit empowering people to obey the law, forming a new people that is no longer defined by the unfaithfulness that defined Israel under the old covenant. These are the things that I think we should be attending to a lot more. Um, The elders in Numbers chapter 11, presumably they were faithful Israelites to the extent that there were faithful Israelites in that time, of people who are very often unfaithful. They received the Spirit in this signal event and we're given the impression that they didn't prophesy in that same way again, in the same way as the Spirit descending upon Saul in chapter 10. He prophesies. He doesn't prophesy normally, but it's a sign of his new status, the new calling that's given to him. So I think that is what we're seeing here. Not so much a movement um, that should be focused upon the interiority of individuals, but a transition in the calling of the people of God and the spread of the Spirit to this whole body. Um, This is now the dwelling place of God, the people, not just a tent in the midst of the people, not just the law written on tablets of stone, but the law written on human hearts. And there I think, again, there's this theme throughout Scripture of the law moving from tablets of stone and gradually moving in. It moves in in song as we start to internalize the law and it comes up springs up in delight and praise and memorization in wisdom as we start to internalize the principles of the law and see the world in light of that in terms of prophecy as god gets um, the prophet to eat the word and i think the fire here is important there's a play upon tongues tongues of flame but also tongues set aflame um, the tongues of human speech that are empowered by the spirit and so these these are the ways in which the spirit is changing things. I think. Yeah, that might that might suggest that the analogy is very much with something like the judges. That it's a it is an investment of the church with this power to fulfill a vocation, and it's the focus is not so much on uh, their individual salvation. It's focused on now the church. The church is functioning as the as the warrior uh, that's going out and accomplishing God's. Uh, God's mission in the world. James, do you have any thoughts on all this? We mentioned earlier the way in which when uh, the work of God seems like drunkenness in the eyes of those standing by, that's a sign of their lack of understanding and, and they mock the work of God. But very often in the Gospels, there is a truth, um, there's a grain of truth to mockery when Pilate mockingly puts the title, you know, says, Behold the King of the Jews. There is a much deeper spiritual truth to what he's saying. And I wonder if this statement uh, in verse 13, others mocking, said they are filled with new wine, has that same sense. We have various pictures um, in in the past of um, inauguration and of benefits enjoyed ahead of time. So the Israelites, for instance, are able to eat the grapes of Eshkol before they go into um 
Canaan and, and have them there. Or the Passover meal seems to me, at least, to be enjoyed by the disciples a day ahead of time. Um, they, they eat it with Jesus. And here, as Jeff pointed out, it's the barley harvest. It's it's not the grape harvest. And, and so new wine could signify a, a crop ahead of time. But here, the disciples are, are getting that foretaste of a new move of God and of a new kingdom soon to be established. And in, in the mock, they are filled with new wine. I wonder if there's a truth to be seen to that. They are recipients of a, of a new kingdom and a new blessing soon to be poured out. Mm. And a certain kind of inebriation, perhaps. In his uh, catechetical lectures, Ambrose exhorted his catechumens to be baptized and receive the Spirit, not be, not to be drunk with wine, but to be inebriated by the Spirit. So maybe there's a there's some there's some allusion to that contrast Paul Paul uses elsewhere uh, in the New Testament. You can also think about the relationship between the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the church. The event of Pentecost is a transition, a handing on of the baton. Um, the great example, I think, in the Old Testament is Elijah and Elisha, as Elisha's ascension is Elisha's Pentecost. Um, Christ tells his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem and they will be um, clothed with power from on high. And the story of Pentecost is the descent of the mantle of the departing prophet upon the prophet that will succeed him. Now, in First Kings chapter 19, um, Elijah is given a mission, which is to anoint Jehu, to anoint Haziel, king of Syria, and to anoint Elisha, who will succeed him. And he only performs one of those things. It's actually Elisha who performs the anointing of Jehu and Haziel. And here, I think, we're seeing the same sort of thing. The ministry of the church is the ministry of Christ continued. It's not a different ministry. It's not just a response to the ministry of Christ. It is the continuation in the sense that Luke suggests at the very beginning of the gospel, at the very beginning of the, the book, that all that Christ began both to do and teach, now he has been taken up and the ministry is carried on through this transitional event where it will now be acting in the name of Jesus Christ by his spirit and it's not the church acting on its own accord, it's the church performing Christ's mission. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.